Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of The Lightest Side of Serial Killers here on the Boom Bastic Media Network. I am your host, Keith Rovere. I'm an author and collector of true crime art and memorabilia, and I am so happy that you're here. If you follow me on social media, listen to the podcast, you know I'm a big advocate for prison rehabilitation because there's not much of it going on. I was talking to uh, uh, someone, I was actually talking to two different people today, uh, just at the horrendous conditions uh, that you're experiencing in prison. It shouldn't matter what you've done, what kind of crime you've done. Um, should be focused on prison. Should be focused on prison rehabilitation, uh, making them a better person if possible. My book, The Story of You, does talk about brain abnormalities. So there's some medicines that just aren't going to work. You know, if your brain is built a little differently or you have head injuries. But for those who can be real rehabilitated, uh, why not try? Instead of making it worse. Um, I'm not sure if he's going to do the podcast, but William Howell, serial killer in Connecticut, uh, I've been recently talking a lot to, calls me a couple times a week, uh, and just the, just the way the guards treat him there. Now, you might be thinking, he's a serial killer, he deserves it. Okay, if you listen to the podcast, you're probably not one of those people. Um, but just the rights that the, the guards seem to think they have, just to go into a cell, uh, which, you know, what they call their home, that's their home. Uh, and just to tear it up, for example, he was so bummed. He was making a dream catcher. Um, he had like kind of a broken nail clipper kind of wedged into something else to kind of kind of help shave down the the leather a little bit from he ripped down from a sneaker, an old sneaker to kind of make the, the outside, you know, the dream catcher. Well, just for no reason. They just came in and just destroyed everything. And um, he said the anger that the people at that facility have towards the guard. He's like, no one's getting treated here. You know, no one's getting rehabilitated here. Uh, they're just pissing us off. They're making us more angry. And I, it's just countless stories. I can go over and over again. Paul Dozero, uh, the Jacksonville Strangler, I've been talking to him recently, and the same thing. Now, he just got transferred to a new facility. And, and granted, yeah, you, you've done, you're a serial killer. You've done some horrible crimes. But just the, just the way they're treated, um, it's just ridiculous. You know, I and mean, it should be rehabilitated. I mean, whether they're going to get out or not. You know, again, maybe that's just me, um, but I do believe in prison rehabilitation. Uh, and even if they're not going to get it out, what a testimony to say, wow, my life is completely trained, a change. You know, I've done, I know I was a horrible person. I've done some horrible things, um, but this program really helped me out. This program really helped me out. This crazy kid from South Jersey who reached out to me through letters and phone calls, he encouraged me so much. He showed me kindness and love and compassion. It just changed my life. I have a new outlook on life. I don't want to hurt people anymore. I don't have these negative thoughts anymore. Okay, you're not, you might not be getting out, but you know what? Your story might get out. Your testimony, if you will, might get out. Someone might hear you, listen to how you've overcome your 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 demon, so to speak, uh, and maybe you can encourage somebody else through your story. So I don't want to hear this crap. Oh, lock away and throw lock them up, throw away the key. Okay, if you're the victim, uh, you know I get it. And even if you're not, okay, I get it. But man, if you can possibly help somebody else, um, especially when you're you have a psychopathic mind, and prison facilities don't get it that punishment is not a deterrent for a psychopath. Reward is reward is a wonderful deterrent. You know, spend some time with Dennis Rader, BTK. How the rewards of something so simple like chocolate pudding on the weekends, a, a cheeseburger. You know, have more time for the TV, more time to play Xbox or other different facilities. You now, if you read my book, again, The Story of You, it's like a big plug for my book, The Story of You. That's Y-U, not Y-O-U, um, up in Norway. 
um, the incentive-based programs they have. I mean, it's the lowest recidivism rate in the world. Um, so again, just part of what I do is 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 for that the rehabilitation and reaching out to these men and women. Um, it's called the lighter side of serial killers because we don't just talk about the crimes. You know, we'll get into that too, but also who they are as humans. You know, the positive stories. Um, how they've possibly overcome their demons. What are they up to now? The artwork or whatever they may, that may be. Um, so again, if you're tuning in for, for, for the first time, welcome. Uh, make sure you tell all your friends about it. Share uh, the podcast. Follow me on social media. Retweet. Share all that good stuff. Post on your stories. Get the word out there. Uh, hopefully more guests will be coming on. Uh, today, we're going to hear from somebody I've known for many years, Robert Bardo. Um, Google his name. If you don't know who he is, um, or maybe you've already done that, and that's why I listen to the podcast. If not, Google his name and, and click on the images, uh, and just take a look at the images of who he is and his face. Uh, he killed um, the young actress Rebecca Schaefer, I believe, in 1989 uh, in July, I believe. If I'm not mistaken. I want to say July 18th. I should have notes in front of me, but I'm pretty sure it's July 18th, 1989. Um, I remember when that happened, seeing the news and seeing those images that if you Google, just Google those images and seeing his face and just being scared, like, oh, that man looks like the devil. You know, he just had that look about him that you knew something. Like if he was staring at you, you don't keep staring. You, you run. You know, <laughs> that kind of look. I just remember it frightened me so much. Uh, and I still get, you know, goosebumps when I, uh, when I look at an image of him. And now we're friends. <laughs> that's the crazy part. You know, I guess that's just my life. It's just commonplace. People ask me all the time, how do you do it? Serial killers call you and write you letters. It's, it's just my everyday life. Um, yeah, but sometimes I get, I, I take pause sometimes when some people, I see the letter and you see David Berkowitz, you see BTK. And, and I'm reminded of those images that Robert Bardo, when I first saw him, you know, many years ago when he came at the murder. And now, um, you know, he writes me, well, he has a tablet now. Um, you know, so he talks to me every couple of days, uh, and we've been talking on the phone for a while. Um, they're allowed in California, his facility, 15 minute free phone calls, but now he has a tablet. Um, and as we're going to listen to this, we, uh, um, we get into many things, childhood, obviously the murder and stuff like that. Um, it's very rare. He doesn't talk about this. Um, so it, it's very rare that he even brings up Rebecca, um, which is cool. So you get a little insight into his mind. And he's going to get into his childhood, the murder, what happened afterwards. Now, the audio is a little wonky for a little bit from his because he was talking to a new tablet. He switched to a, a real telephone, uh, probably about the 18 minutes or so mark. I edited it so it just sounds like one flowing conversation. Uh, so it gets better, I promise. All right. So let's hear my conversation with Robert Bardo. Hey. How are you doing, Keith? Can you hear me? Yeah. How are you, sir? Doing all right. You can hear me good? Yeah, perfectly. All right. Well, anyways, I'm talking to you on the tablet, of course. So you can hear me pretty good, right? Yeah, I hear you a lot better than even with the phone. This sounds great. Okay. That's good. Okay, yeah, because I'm, I'm on top of my locker. Uh, I got the table on top of my locker. It's like a thin locker attached to the end of the bed of my bed. Okay. Great. Uh, that, that's definitely did good. Did you say you had some questions? Yeah, we'll do some questions for the podcast. Questions for me? Or... Yeah, we'll get a, I'll get a whole bunch. You know, do as many as we can. Nice what song. do you want to start on there is a nice little um, a documentary. There's a couple different ones I saw in you over the, over the past few weeks. One of the ones that was neat, uh, even back in, yeah. in, in your uh, in your trial, the one thing I noticed, you, you kind of you know didn't really move around too much like most you know defendants do, just behind a table. But I noticed when they played 
for some reason they played in the court the U2 song Exit. And then your eyes lit up. You start moving around. You see you yeah. dancing around a little bit. What was it about that yeah, song in I mean, general that really... That was exaggerated. What's that? Well, I mean, for me, that, that, that footage was taken out of context and it was exaggerated. I didn't even realize I was moving that much. Yeah, I right. was just, you know, after being locked up in the LA County Jail for so long, I hadn't heard music in a while. And uh, that song, uh, uh, I mean, uh, from the Joshua Tree 1987, I... I uh, and I took it to heart for the lyrics. You have to read the lyrics, and you might kind of understand it better. Sure. Uh, according to U2, Bono is based on that guy from Utah, Gary Gilmore, who was executed in 1977 at Point of Mountain uh, State President in Utah in January of 1977 when the United States reinstated the death penalty. He, he was executed, but it's a song about him, but I took the lyrics, and I... Uh, you'd have to read the lyrics off. And I, but, I mean, I was just... But at that time, I was just hadn't heard music for a while, and I was and I didn't realize my movements were so exaggerated. I thought I was just popping my head, uh, and I didn't know my lawyer was going to play that song. But I listened to a lot of different stuff with the Stingray app. The classic rock station on here is K I O O, and it plays like surface level. Sometimes it goes deep. It has a night with Alice Cooper at night, um, uh, Monday through Saturday. Uh, so I listen to that sometimes, but uh, I listen nice. to KYNO sometimes, but lately I've been listening to the Stingray app, and uh, there's internet radio uh, uh, with the TuneIn radio and uh, uh, Got Radio, which plays like uh, uh, 70s and 80s music, 60s, 70s, and 80s music, mm-hmm. uh, so I've been listening to that, I've watched, I've listened to the news a lot, keeping up with what's going on in Sudan, and uh, with the uh, abortion pill. Nice. And with the upcoming elections and mm-hmm. with California debt problems and stuff like that. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and thanks again for doing the podcast. Uh, you know, it definitely means a lot to me and the listeners, of course. Oh, just one. What is it called? Yeah, we do. What is it called? Is it the lighter side of? Uh, who listens to it? It's worldwide. I have about probably about fifty thousand followers somewhere around there. Um, that's why I wanted to have you on because uh, okay. I know you have a lot of um, positive things to say too. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, about your past, but also about okay. how, all the positive things. Um, for example, like when you were younger, um, I know okay. there's some issues, you know, when you're like a little okay. kid. And one part of the documentary that they were saying they, you know, they bought some of your teachers as a childhood. And maybe you can talk about how um, what was your mental state growing up? It sounded like you had a little bit of a hard time. Some of the, the counselors were saying. Um, you even reached out. Hey, can you help me? Yeah. Can you help me? And and yeah. what was your childhood like as far as mental state? Like teachers and having a rough time. I mean, I think sometimes it looks like some teacher made fun of you, saying some negative things about you, and you're like, she has to die, and you know, you know, lashing out that way. Um, no, but- I never wrote. No, I don't. I don't. I never said anything about any teacher dying or anything like that. I don't. Re- I don't recall any of that. Uh, 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 like, have you seen something about that? I've never seen anything like that. Uh, that's news to me. Uh, yeah, he was saying, and one time, I guess, maybe you're having maybe one time emotionally, I wasn't sure if you wanted to live, and someone said they helped you with somebody named Mrs. Morris said something negative about you, an ex-school counselor. Um, it was some things you were relaying to him, um, maybe that you don't want to live anymore. And then he said that, hey, thank you for saving me. 
saving me from killing myself, but you saved the devil and now the devil must kill or something dramatic like <laughs> something dramatic like that. But it was a documentary, oh, wow. so you never know what the heck's true on those goofy shows. That's what I figured I'd ask you about your childhood. Yeah, I, I never uh yeah, I never physically threatened uh, Miss Morris, but yeah, there's a teacher. Her name is Patricia Morris. She's a blonde-haired, blue-eyed teacher. Mm-hmm. Back around 1984, she was my teacher at Sheffield. But I never threatened her. Uh, so that's that's all bogus. But uh, yeah. she and uh, Mr. Don Hickman, my counselor back then, were helping me uh, with a, a situation at home that I was trying to uh, get away from, and they helped mm. me a great deal. Oh, good. Uh, in my uh, teenage years, I guess I struggled with bipolar, manic depression, and it's something that uh, you know a lot of you just go through. Mm. But I, from you know, I still sabotage my social life, and that uh, led me to be a kind of a loner, and uh, that was my fault. I did things that uh, you know that were impulsive or you know instant gratification that led mm. me mm-hmm. to uh, to a different path sure. than I would normally have done. So, did you have a lot of Was it hard to make friends when you were growing up too because of that? I mean, I had friends, but they're, I had friends, but they're superficial friends, and uh, I, uh, I didn't always treat my friends uh, very well growing up, and I regret that. I have a lot of regret over that. So, mm-hmm. uh, was it to the point yeah, like so. like hearing voices, kind of a thing, or just? Uh... No, I don't suffer from auditory or uh, visual hallucinations. I don't suffer from those. Oh, good. I never did street drugs, and uh, I wasn't an alcoholic. I never smoked cigarettes, so. I had tattoos, tall, sure. medium build, uh, mm-hmm. healthy, no Good. diseases that I'm aware of. So. Good. I think I read they were talking yeah. about, uh, yeah. I, I think from somebody, I think it was your brother might have said it, where like sometimes in the wintertime, um, you will go actually, you're, you went up up on the roof of the house to sleep. <laughs> was that true? Or is there, you get more, you know, just some more uh, peace and quiet? Well, back in, when I was 13 years old, I used to do that. That was back in like the 1983. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was nice up there. Uh, it was a one-story home, so it was easy to climb up on the fence to get up to there. Uh, yeah, that was, it was an all right time. Cool. Uh, yeah, I remember 1983 pretty well. Yeah, that was when like uh Chippin had that song uh uh what was it uh a song by R and B group called Champagne and the song was uh uh Maybe We Could Try Again, I think that's the name of the song. Ah, nice. Maybe we could try again from uh Champagne from the early eighties, like eighty three. And then the uh, cultural club was big back then, Duran Duran, uh Billy Joel. Uh, with uh, the Innocent Man album with uh, Tell Her About and Uptown Girl and Hall and Oates with uh, Say It Isn't Say It Isn't So and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, so that yeah, I just did that at nighttime when it was nice and peaceful. Was uh was music always a big part yeah, of your life? Yeah, I know we we've talked about music a lot over the, you oh, know, the yeah. times we've known. Well, I, well, before I got it, I mean Billy Joel with his uh, Tell Her About It in 1983. That's like the first pop song that I really liked. Uh, that was the first single I purchased, but the uh, before that, I listened to John Williams' music from the movies. Mm-hmm. I had Empire Strikes Back soundtrack and Superman the movie and Star Wars soundtracks. Nice. Uh, the two LP sets uh, that I got for Christmas in 1980. Uh, and before that, when I we were living in Japan on on Yokota Air Base, I used to watch Japanese action shows and anime, and I listened to the Japanese music that accompanied those. Oh, wow. So, uh, 
along the lines of those Shogun Warriors, Voltron, Tempest, almost like that. Mm-hmm. All those action heroes uh, in Japan back in the 70s. Oh, nice. Do you have any favorite movies when you were growing up or that you remember yeah. that you watch? What movies or TV shows did you really like, too? Yeah, uh, when we were in Japan, we saw that movie, Twilight Last Gleaming from 1977. Uh, uh, it's like a, a president is taken hostage by terrorists who took over a nuclear power plant or nuclear weapons or something like that. started Burt Lancaster. Uh, but the movie uh, that I remember most, uh, one of the first movies I ever saw was Jaws, and that movie frightened me. Uh, <laughs> Jaws from uh, Steven Spielberg. Oh, yeah. And then we saw Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't see e- I didn't see E.T. the Extraterrestrial, even though that came out when I was 12 years old. I didn't see it until I was 18 years old when they released it on video. And reading, yeah. and reading uh, yeah, there's a lot of documentaries you know, that, that, uh, that talk about you, and, and you never know what's actually true and what's not true. Had something happened. I don't know how, how old you were. Um, yeah. There's something in California that, uh, that you got, like, robbed or something, or you got jumped or something that happened that made you actually want to get some protection, like, to get a gun? No, what happened was, no, I mean, I was, I had an incident. Uh, it was my fault. I, I uh, uh, I was in Hollywood, and I uh, I didn't get jumped. What happened was that I uh, tried to do a, uh, get something, get something, uh, and uh, purchase it, and I I uh, the person didn't deliver. Uh, mm-hmm. It's in the back streets of, of Hollywood. It's in the like the summer of 1987 when I was 17 years old. Oh, okay. uh, it happened with a couple of guys. Mm. So, but it was no, nothing too big. Uh, That's good. It's my fault. I, I accept responsibility for my part in that. So, there's no big deal. I, I wasn't beaten up. I wasn't. It was just people who were dishonest with me, and oh, I okay. uh, gave okay. them the property, and I expected something back, and I didn't sure. get. So that's all it was. Ah, okay, okay. And when you when you hear, uh, what was yeah. the first time you heard about? Obviously, you know Rebecca Schaefer. Everybody knew her as a famous actress and all. Um, when was the first time you 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 heard about her or saw her? Was it just from TV, from the TV show, or like my sister Sam? Yeah, or? it was uh, in 1986. When I was, yeah, it was my sister Sam in 1986 during the summer. I just dropped out of high school, Pueblo High School in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, I dropped out at the beginning of the tenth grade, despite having straight A's throughout the ninth grade. I just didn't feel I fit it in, and I wanted to become a musician, a guitar and songwriter. Nice. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of like Bruce Springsteen or Billy Joel, mm-hmm. but I. Uh, it, uh, what happened was is uh, I, I left school and I uh, wanted to work instead. So I worked at Jack in a Box. That's when I started working in, in, mm-hmm. in 1986. Uh, and then uh, uh, first I worked at a McDonald's that my sister's uh, husband's father owned. But then I didn't last long there, so I went to the Jack in the Box next door, other in Tucson in Arizona, and I was there working on and off until just shortly before my crime in 1989. But I saw Rebecca Schaefer uh, on uh, uh, well, I was sitting at home watching TV. I used to watch Magnum P.I. with Tom Selleck. Sure. And Simon and Simon and Equalizer with Edward Woodward. Hell yeah. yeah. And because yeah. I watched TV a lot, I saw a TV commercial. I saw a TV commercial. Promoting the new shows, and it, there was Sam Dauber, and then the girl beside her was Rebecca Shaver. Mm-hmm. And from there, I decided to find out that she's beautiful. I decided, you know, I'd never seen anything like that before, like her before. Uh, how did it make you feel after you re- wrote Rebecca and she replied to you? 
Uh, how did it make you feel when you got oh. the letter from her? And then what did she say in the letter? Okay, I got a picture postcard, a small one, not the glossy one that uh, uh, that was said in the trial or in media reports. It's the small one with, where she has like a ruffled pillow underneath her armpit. It was black and white photo. It's online, that photo. And she signed it in blue marker all the way through. I felt ecstatic. Uh, I wrote her the, uh, the Warner Brothers Records address in uh, 1986 because I had the Prince 1999 cassette tape, and I had found out. Uh, that the show was filmed in Burbank, California at the Warner Brothers Studios. Back then it was called the Burbank Studios. Uh, on it, she wrote Robert Dash, in blue markers, she wrote Robert Dash. Your letter was the nicest and most real letter I ever received. The only thing I disagree with is uh, something about, uh, something I wrote about helping people uh, related to God or something like that. She said she disagreed with that. She believed that people should do something to help themselves or something like that. And then she wrote, please take care. And uh, she wrote uh, a little heart symbol and a little peace symbol. And then she wrote, love, Rebecca. And then on the picture side, she put in the center, she wrote in blue marker, Robert Dash, and she put a peace sign and I mean, a heart sign and a peace sign. And then she wrote her signature. And that was basically it. Nice. Uh, I showed it to her on the day of the crime, uh, the first visit to her apartment, uh, near West Hollywood in L.A., mm-hmm. on, uh, on North Sweetser Avenue in Los Angeles. Uh, and I asked her if she remembered, and she said, yes, yes, she did. Oh, nice. Uh, I lost it at the, after the crime because uh, I kept tossing stuff away, and I panicked. Uh, I'm sure. So, did you try to, to try to visit uh, her at one of the studios with Warner Brothers, or maybe it was called something different back then? Uh, I think well, you might have I was bought- called Warner Brothers Studios. Oh, okay. Back then, but it's, uh, back then it was called the Burbank Studios. And I uh, tried to see her. Uh, I, I went to, uh, I had a white teddy bear, big white teddy bear, fluffy white teddy bear with a blue ribbon around his neck, baby blue <laughs> nice. ribbon. Uh-huh. I bought that at the Alcom Mall in Tucson, Arizona. And I, when I got to LA, flying via American West Airlines, it's the Burbank Airport, and got to the Hotel Whitley, which was a weekly hotel north of Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, I went to a florist on Melrose Avenue, and I told him to give her a dozen silk roses along with a teddy bear and deliver it to the studios. Instead, they sent flowers, which I didn't ask for, but I called a, a florist, and they said that they tried to deliver it to the studios, but the security refused it. And then I called the studios and called the secretary there, and she told me to come and that the chief of security, Jack Edgar, wanted to talk to me. So I went to, I was invited into the studio, and I spoke to him, and he said uh, that he was gonna. He wasn't gonna allow it. He wasn't gonna give it to her. And then he told me that she wanted nothing to do with me and all this other stuff that was negative that made me think of Rebecca in a negative light. Uh, and I found out later that she ne- knew nothing about. But it shattered me. I was 17 years old at the time. This was around May, June of 1987. Mm-hmm. And then I tried to see her. Uh, I, I, the, he had one of his uh, British. Uh, uh, guy who was white British dude. Uh, it looked like he was in his 30s. He gave me a tour around the studio on a golf cart, Burbank Studios. Oh, nice. Uh, then they had, like, in his office, he had, like, a big, huge, like, a map of the whole studios. And there was a separate studio called the Burbank Studios Ranch on Pass Avenue in Burbank, where Growing Pains and uh, my sister Sam were filmed. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. And so I went about a month later to try to see her there. But when I went to the studio gate, uh, 
the guard there was trying to uh, charm me, and uh, uh, I felt say some things that were manipulated to me. Uh, and then another guard came along and said some stuff that upset me. That was very disrespectful, and then I just blamed mm. Rebecca on my mind. Mm. Uh, so that led me uh, during that period. I uh, I bought a book at the Dalton Bookstores on Hollywood Boulevard, which I don't think there anymore. And it was the Love You Take, which is about the Beatles, about Peter Brown. Mm-hmm. Or the Love You Make or the Love You Take, based on the Abbey Road song, The End, by Paul McCartney, mm-hmm. at the end of Abbey Road LP. Sure. LP album. Well, anyways, uh, in the book, at the last chapter, was about Mark David Chapman, who shot John Lennon in December 8th, 1980, in New York City. And I had uh, read that, and I identified with Mark David Chapman before I hated him for killing John Lennon because I was a big Beatles fan. Sure. But uh, I read late to the fact that his father was in the Air Force just like mine, and he moved around a lot, a lot just like me. And I understood his depression because I had manic uh, depression, bipolar. And so I related to that. And that's when I got the idea of getting revenge and resentment against Rebecca Schaefer. Mm-hmm. And I had nothing going on in my life. I had no purpose. I was very narrow-minded, and I was uh, guided by entitlement beliefs, work beliefs, distorted beliefs. Uh of entitlement and uh, yeah, it was just uh, yeah. How was it? Do you? Yeah. Was that? I say, what, how did you end up finding uh, where her house address? Uh see, what happened? In, I used to go to what was called Alpha Beta or Abco. They changed it to ABCO. Abco Supermarkets in Tucson, Arizona, Valencia Road, or not. It was near my workplace on Jack in the Box on Valencia Road, the Jack in the Box I worked at from 1986 to 1989. Anyways, uh, during that, uh, I used to look at the magazines in there, and I looked at a People magazine from like May of 1989 uh, that was near the checkout counter of the, uh, the supermarket. And it had a story about Teresa Saldana fighting to keep Arthur Jackson, the guy who attacked her in 1982 outside her Hollywood apartment, the Scottish drifter. Uh, she was an actress who starred in Raging Bull and I Want to Hold Your Hand. Okay, yeah, yeah. movie about the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And anyways, this uh, explained how he hired a private investigator to find her. And I didn't know that you could hire a private investigator. So I went, as soon as I got home, I looked through the yellow pages and I saw the, uh, the Zika, Anthony Zika's agency and I called him and he said he would help me out. And so I sold my CDs and my guitar and everything to pay for that. He did it within a week. I went to his home, went to his office and I showed him the cover of the TV guide that says Sister Power and he got her spelling of her last name correct because he wanted to make sure he got the last name wrong. Right. One of the reasons he called her around and he got her neighbors in Sunset Plaza Drive where she lived in the Hollywood Hills say that she hadn't been there she moved out of the house that she lived there, and, and then she moved to another place. So he went to the DMV and found her address for $4, but he charged me $150 or something like that. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And he gave me her address that was in the, uh, 120 North Sweetshire Avenue in Los Angeles in a four-unit apartment that was built in the 1920s. Mm, nice. And that's how I found it. Now, when you were heading over there... Um... Obviously, you said you have some resentment towards her. Was it all resentment as you're walking over, or was it? Do you have any positive thoughts too? Like, hey, this could, you know, I just want to meet her too. No, I, was, I had pretty much brainwashed myself with negative thinking. Ah, uh, okay. I wasn't delusional. I mean, I was deluded by distorted thinking, and I had my mind was narrow-minded. What triggered me to think about Rebecca after all the times uh, was 
I won a radio contest to see the Patrick Swayze movie Roadhouse in Tucson, Arizona, mm-hmm. uh, from this Tucson radio station. And when I got to the Tucson uh, theater uh, to see the movie, there's a magazine, a movie magazine, and there it talked about the movie scenes from the past struggle of Beverly Hills, which started Rebecca Schaefer in it as a small part. Mm-hmm. And that's what triggered me to think about Rebecca again. Ah, uh, okay. And I, uh, that's what uh, started me on that. Uh, on that, on that sure. path. Do you remember what you were thinking? As soon as she opened the door and you got to see her, you know, face to face, do you remember how that made you feel when you're finally seeing her, you know, one on one, face to face? Yeah, I was happy at first. Yeah, at first I was happy, but I could see that she was uneasy and cautious. And, uh, she was wearing glasses with a chain that wraps around your neck. Uh, she had her hair like in a ponytail on the back. Mm hmm. Like a thick ponytail. She was wearing a baby blue short sleeve shirt. She was wearing jeans. The first visit, uh, she came down and asked who I was because there was a buzzer that said Schaefer that I rang that, and that's when she came to the door. It was mm-hmm. early morning of Tuesday, July 18th. Yeah, so that's when I spoke to her. Uh, I kept saying, I'm sorry to bother you, and I, I uh, had that bag with the gun in it. There's a white Antco plastic bag where you, where they usually bite. You usually hold uh, apples or oranges. Mm-hmm. It's had with the gun in a holster, and I had the, uh, the picture poster, and I showed it to her and asked her if she remembers uh, uh, saying it to me. She had, she was like, uh, uh, she started to uh, close the door, being cautious, and then she came out, and uh, and uh, I said, I'm sorry to bother you, and she said, I'd rather you not have come to my front door. Uh, and then uh, uh, I told her that I watched the show, the repeats that were on USA Network back then, back in 89. She nodded her head. Uh, I noticed she had about a two-quarters wind jewelry on her fingers. Uh, she smiled and kept saying, please take care, please take care. And I was trying to talk to her, but I felt I was getting the runaround. And so I left kind of frustrated. And I remember my frustrations from 1987. Uh all the things that the security guard poisoned my mind was that I took to, uh, as resentment against her that still wasn't resolved. Mm-hmm. And that's when I, uh, and I had, uh, had been listening to the U2 album, The Joshua Tree, that was released in 1987. And I did focus on the lyrics of that song, Exit, which was described, sounds like a guy, the lyrics seems to describe a guy who's getting ready to use his gun to uh, commit a murder. And so I, uh, I just basically followed through on that, mm-hmm. and I, I just because I sold my seat, my Beatles CDs, and all my all, all my CDs and all my uh, my guitars and everything. I was an aspiring musician, mm, okay. and everything, but I didn't mm-hmm. get too far from there, and I was frustrated with that. So I took all my resentment out on Rebecca that day, uh, mm-hmm. and I. You know, recently, just recently, her mother passed away on what would have been Rebecca's 55th birthday on November oh, okay. 2022. So I, uh, I thought about her, uh, her and Rebecca. Uh, sure. Now, what'd you do? Uh, you know, right, what I did. Yeah. Now, what what'd you do? You know, right after the shooting itself, where did you go, or what did you do? And kind of, I ran into the alley that was like a couple of apartments down, and just threw everything up. To, Rooftops and into the dumpster. I threw the gun in the dumpster that was nearby in the back alley. 
and I just panicked and I made my way. I was wearing flip flops too. I took off the uh, yellow long sleeve, light yellow canary yellow uh, gap shirt that my sister, one of my sisters, gave me. She worked at the Gap, and I tossed that aside because I had blood on the sleeve, on the right sleeve. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just panicked and I made my way to the bus, uh, the Greyhound bus station. I had a round trip ticket and, and I uh, eventually made it to Phoenix and then to Tucson. But I had a prayer card, a Catholic prayer card that I had it from 1987 that I acquired from a church in downtown LA that was in one of the, uh, like a shopping center that was a subterranean shopping center mm-hmm. that was part of one of the, the uh, large, uh, I don't know if it was part of the Western Bond Vegetable or one of those places. And uh, yeah, and I was praying for Rebecca to survive. I was in the bus station in the restroom, and I, uh, it's like a, a Catholic, uh, 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 it's like a cheap page, small little, like, tract, Catholic tract. I'm not Catholic, mm-hmm. but I read it and, uh, and said the prayer. Uh, it's some uh, Catholic female nun who is a saint who has something about, there's a lot of roses. She's like a saint of roses or something like that. Okay. Because uh, I had a lot of roses regarding mm-hmm. her, and I said the prayer, but, and then I said, you know, those black, Molded chairs have the black and white TVs that you insert coins. It says TV on the back. Oh, okay. Uh, they had that in the, the uh, Greyhound bus station in downtown L.A. And I, as I sat next to a guy, he had the news on, and it was Channel 7, KABC News, and they opened their, like, 11 or 12 o'clock news, and, the, and it, said, <laughs> it led for the story of Rebecca Schaefer. And it showed the door open, and it showed the LAPD, and it said Rebecca Lissol Schaefer was shot to death. And it, it spoke briefly about her. I remember when the story was over, the two anchors looked at each other and said, oh, and uh, they mentioned that she had died. She was pronounced dead at the hospital, Cedar Sinai Hospital in Beverly Hills. And I was shocked, even though I knew what I'd done. I, you know, I, I, uh, mm-hmm. I hope that she had, would have pulled through. And I... Uh, sure. Uh, and I... Uh, as soon as I shot her, I immediately regretted it, and uh, and I, I I was telling myself, what have I done? What have I done? And I was thinking, uh, it's more horrifying than I expected. And I, uh, yeah, that's all I'll talk about sure. that for now. But, oh yeah, uh, that was. Uh, no, from I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm, I don't, I'm going surface level with this right now because I don't want to talk too much about it. I don't want to go too deep with it. Oh, of course. Now, as yeah. far as you know, but anyways, I thought I would mention it to you. Oh, definitely. I was, I was reading on the, uh, I was reading on the tablet. They're mentioning uh, uh, all these true crime uh, uh, things. Uh, there's a lot of true crime podcasts uh, going on right now, and they're talking about how a lot of. Uh, uh, what I was surprised is they're, they're talking about the top thirty uh, true crime novels or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they mentioned their number one was uh, something to do with the fact that. A lot of uh, women are attracted to true crime podcasts, and that they're watching ones that regarding where women are the victims of the murder. Mm. And uh, uh, I was surprised by that, but yeah, you know, so I, yeah, I've seen that there's a lot of true crime uh, interest. In oh, for sure, it's which probably, I didn't really understand. Yeah, it's probably bigger yeah. than it's ever been, um, and and yeah. kind of more of on a positive. Um, how are you doing now? Obviously, I, we've known each other now for a few years, writing back and forth. You've been doing, you know, some artwork and 
uh, writing a lot of letters. Yeah. Um, how are you doing now? You know, mentally and, and physically and health wise, and um, well, I'm doing good. Uh, the basic cable channels are uh, coming in fuzzy. We're having problems with our uh, cable thing because uh, we uh, and uh, so the lower channels, which are Fresno area stations, they're not coming in. And so I'm just basically getting my news off of the tablet. I'm getting NPR News to five minute news from NPR News now. Sure. Uh, I've been watching. I, I got a news app that tells me the various news stories that are going on mm-hmm. uh, from different periodicals across the United States. Uh, I'm interested in that artificial intelligence chatbots. Uh, learning more about those, I'm hearing that those are going to revolutionize the world. Yeah. Um, I'm pushing my idea that distilled white vinegar can dissolve the calcium in people's arteries to lessen the effects of arteriosclerosis. Mm, okay. uh, so I'm uh, pushing that idea, and I want to share that idea with people to uh, uh, consuming distilled white vinegar on an empty stomach to mm-hmm. dissolve uh, cal- calcium deposits in their arteries. Uh, right now, I'm taking a uh, generic version of Lipitor because my triglyceride level was high. Uh, and my glucose levels were high, so now I'm oh, okay. taking just one uh, pill a day, mm-hmm. which is uh, uh, adiborstatin calcium or something like that, it's called. Uh, and uh, another thing is somebody's making a TikTok video that, that's reading off my petition, so... Uh, it should be on TikTok. Uh, well, I was just going to ask you about that. Friend of mine. You, you're, you know, now you're a big advocate for gun control. So, why don't you talk a little bit about that? And no, 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 no. It's not gun control. It's 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 ammunition management and ammunition diversion. Got and tell everybody. As you can see what's going on. Yeah. As you what was that? What was uh, that yeah, 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 definitely. Keep going. Keep you know describing uh, what the what the petition is. Okay, as you can see, what's happening in the war between Russia and Ukraine? Both sides are. Are need uh, ammunition. Ukraine's begging for ammunition, and so is the Wagner Group, which is a private group that's fighting for Russia uh, on Russia's side, and they both need ammunition, and it's affecting their ability. And that shows the effect that ammunition has on gun violence. You need a steady supply, and a lot of people assume that there's always been a steady supply, but the United States always goes through these periods of ammunition shortages. It usually affects the police and shooting ranges, but my idea is to that it's cheaper for cities, towns, states that are progressive, and local activist groups to buy out the ammunition to create shortages, so that the criminals and mentally ill can't get them, and then to take those those bullets and to recycle the lead and copper in them for renewable energy, because bullets can't happen without lead or copper, and neither lead or copper are in the top 18 of the most common elements in the Earth's crust. If you mm-hmm. go to the United States Geological Survey uh, service uh, website. Mm-hmm. They'll see how much copper and lead's in the world, and how it could the relatively small portion that it goes to bullets that bullets need to be redirected and rechanneled to more peaceful purposes. Like lead can be made into even more solar lead batteries for photovoltaic solar panels, and copper can be made into more wind turbines because it takes like 36 tons to make one wind turbine, mm-hmm. 36 tons of copper. Mm-hmm. So the more that's done is the less copper and lead, the two critical, absolutely two critical elements for gun projectiles to be turned into renewable energy stuff before they even become bullets. So that's my, uh, and then cities can buy out the bullets in their, like Chicago or Baltimore, can buy out all the bullets in their metro area. And that would be cheaper than all the people dying uh, of gun violence. They buy all the annual supply, of all the major <laughs> calibers 
and millimeters and just keep creating shortages so that the criminals don't have access. So they corner the market, so to speak. Mm-hmm. They divert it so the criminals have shortages. So they have shortages instead of the police or shooting ranges. Yeah. And that's that's just the beginning of my idea. I'm looking for experts and academics and people who, who can help me further develop this idea. Uh, but uh, sure. my my uh, uh, petitions on change.org, Robert J. Bardo, reduce or stop U.S. Latin American gun violence. So tell people to go to there and uh, to read it and uh, and all my petitions in my name on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, regarding gun violence, because uh, it's not gun control; it's ammunition management and ammunition ammunition diversion to create sure. uh, ammunition shortages for criminals to mm-hmm. uh, permanently redirect re- uh, direct the lead and copper that's used in bullets to more peaceful, productive purposes, so bullets won't exist. Because without bullets, you don't have guns. Sure, it makes guns mm-hmm. the toothless tiger. So that's just what I wanted to share. Thank oh, you. of course. Now, let's say somebody. What advice would you give? You know, somebody. You know, speaking of you know, with you know, ammunition and obviously the problems with guns and and murder. Um, if someone who is kind of in your position right now, maybe even listening to this show, who's maybe thinking that you know, doing something similar to what you have done, maybe had the same you know, mental, um, you know, issues that you were struggling with. Uh, what advice would you give to them? Uh, what would you say to them? Where would you encourage them to get help and not to do you know, some of the same mistakes that you've made in the past? What would you kind of be your message to them? To me, uh, I would recommend to uh, young people out there to reject the negative thinking, the negative brainwashing. Don't look up to the call of mind shooters or these other mass shooters. I tell them, for me, I've come to Jesus Christ. I'm a born-again Christian, and uh, there's uh, people in the, in the church family that will form a positive peer network, a social network to help you make friends that are positive, that will encourage you. Uh, join a youth Christian groups that, uh, and volunteer. Volunteer at your local charity for animals, for uh, helping the homeless, or to feed. And don't let yourself become isolated and brainwash yourself with negative things on the Internet. Reject all the negative uh, stuff that you see on the Internet or from popular media. Uh, don't brainwash yourself with uh, rap music, uh, gangster rap, or thrash metal that is dark and disturbing. You know, uh, feature self positive self talk. And uh, one of the people that I read is a guy named Brian Tracy, who's a positive self help uh, motivational speaker. And another is Joyce Myers. I read her Christian books. But mm-hmm. uh, prison, a lot of these lifers here are, are struggling to, to get out of prison. They were involved in gang violence for the most part. A lot of these guys regret what they've done that led them to prison because being in prison, you have a lot less freedom. You can't do all the things that you wish you can do. You, there's no, uh, you know, even though we have tablets that are wireless, they're not as good as the smartphones. You'll re- miss your freedom. You'll miss uh, all the the perks of being out there in the free world, and you'll cause tremendous damage to the victims' families. Um, what our society needs and what young, a lot of young people need to learn is empathy, you know, to understand crime victims. I needed more empathy because I, uh, I didn't uh, fully appreciate Benson Schaefer and Dana Wilner Schaefer's pain and suffering that I called them, or for, for Rebecca's friends and her boyfriend at the time, Bradley Silberling, who's a Hollywood director and producer, uh, and for uh, Rebecca's friends like Pam Dollar and her co-stars, and for her friend Barbara Lush, 
and all those people that she cared about. I think, like they do in Japan, is uh, teach empathy at an early age. That's something that people, young people, really need to learn. Uh, mm-hmm. to be with people and understand other people are suffering instead of being callous and forming apathy and and negativity. So our society is becoming more coarse and more hate-filled. There's a lot of bullying and trolling on the Internet. And uh, this is something I'd like to speak more about later on because I don't mm-hmm. think I could probably capture it. Sure. Just one phone call, but that would be where I'd start. You know, in prison, you have to worry about, you know, where you hang your clothes, because the, uh, the, there's only certain places, and they always get crowded. Uh, where you can hang your clothes after you wash them, and you want me to get them to dry. You're 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 constantly uh, facing issues, you know, issues with high canteen prices for the commissary. You're constantly hungry because you don't always get the food that you want. The toilet always break down, or the sinks break down. There's a lot of, uh, uh, in, you know, in prisons, there's a lot of inmates that are. Um, you know, they have substance abuse issues, and that's the leading thing that's going on around here. Is a lot of inmates are, you know, they're taking the Suboxone and they're cheeking it and they're selling it, or they're, uh, you know, they're addicted to a thing called uh, Spice or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I stay away from the drug scene. I don't do drugs at all. But that's the, that's the biggest issue in California, one of the biggest issues in overcrowding prisons, because they're shutting down prisons in California. And there's, a lot of guys are going home. we got like seven lifers who are due to go home in the next three months that were found suitable. There's more people going home, but a lot of guys have drug issues, and they need help. Uh, uh, they're, not, they're not taking their uh, serious their treatment. And sadly, a lot of those guys are going to eventually die of a drug overdose. Yeah. And that's a... Uh, and then another issue we have is these guys, these actives come in the yard, guys who don't want to program. They say a lot of them are from Fresno, the Bulldog uh, gang, and that, they're, that they come onto the yard and they attack the first inmate on these yards so they can go to a GP yard, where a general population yard, where they can hang out with guys that, that are like them that don't want to program, that uh, have, uh, don't want to do any uh, positive programming. Yeah. So we get a lot of, we, we have to be careful. They always announce you know, work changes come into the yard, and we're always being warned about actives. Guys who wait for the canteen, which is near there, get attacked all the time from actives who come on the yard and char- charging them and try to fight them so yeah. they can get off the yard and go to a, a GP yard. I'll talk to you yeah. later on, uh, probably next week. But uh, for that's sure, what I have for you right now. Yeah, we got. Yeah, we okay, got a lot, how much- lot of good stuff, and the phone call was crystal clear, so that was awesome, and a lot of positive. That's what I like. A lot of positive. Okay. Well. We'll start with there. I'll message you more, but um, we'll set up for the next time. But, sure. Uh, probably next Saturday. Oh, you take care. You have, next Saturday. you have a great week, Robert. All right, you too. All right, everybody. That was my conversation with Robert Bardo. Uh, actually, a couple conversations. We started with his tablet. He was so, he was so excited to get the tablet, and, and he still is. I was like, yeah, I want to have plenty of time to talk to you on the phone. And we tried a couple of phone calls, and it was just breaking up horribly, and it was very bassy. Um, I mean, you can still hear, um, you know, maybe not crystal clear, but obviously enough to, you know, you hear what he was saying and you heard it, you heard it switch, you know, from a very bassy kind of muffled sound, uh, to a little bit more, you know, a troubly sound. So, uh, at least it got through, we got it done, we got it on air and we uploaded the podcast. Um, yeah, very fascinating. I mean, he doesn't, 
um, do interviews very often. I mean, I've been blessed for sure that some of the people I had on the po- have on a podcast and are going to have haven't really done any any interviews at all. I mean, I got a phone call um, last week, well, about two weeks ago, from the Hillside Strangler Kenneth Bianchi. He hasn't said a word to anybody. You know, he barely even uh, he doesn't even write letters anymore. I mean, just emails because he knows about the true crime market. He's very protective about what he says. Um, not sure if I can get him on the podcast or not, but but he's calling me. Uh, so the word's getting out there. You know, I think I'm fair to everybody. I'm not a gotcha kind of guy. I'm not going to you know ask where all the extra bodies are that people might think you have and um, you know kind of blindside you in any way. I'm just giving these men and women a platform, you know, to get to know on a human level. Um, not it's obviously it's a true crime podcast, but I do obviously I try to stay positive. Um, you know, for the most part, obviously some people like Keith Jesperson, you know, do like to talk about the crimes in detail. And it's fine; you can do whatever you want. There's really no rules here. Um, so it's good to hear from Robert. Something I mean to get in too depth. He's I mean it took him a while to even want to open up, you know, about the murder about Rebecca. Now, he's very private too. Um, but again, he did. There's so many rumors out there. Um, he opened up a little bit about his childhood. Uh, he doesn't want to get into stuff about his family and what went on with his family. Um, we I asked him about that, and he kind of shut that down pretty quick. Anything what happened in his childhood, um, he didn't want to open up about that at all, which is understandable. Um, but it wasn't easy for Robert. You know, let's just say that. Uh, but he did open up about a lot of other things. Um, you know, some things about early childhood in school. Um, and obviously, you know, his mindset of why he did what he did, which is really what I, I wanted to get out there. Because there's a lot of documentaries, TV shows that say one thing, but the truth is, you know, they get inside somebody's mind, especially a serial killer or a stalker or whatever it may be. That's what I want to do. You know, that's what fascinates me is get to know them on a human level. Because a lot of these men and women who I've had on the show, no one's gotten to know. Or when they were younger, they couldn't be open about who they really were, what they were really thinking. You know, now the cat's out of the bag. You know, they know I'm talking to a murderer, a serial killer, or, or whatever it may be, whatever you've done. So once you're we're past that, okay, I've known what you, I know what you do, but I still want to get to know you. Now you can truly be yourself around me. Um, and, I, and that's what I like. That's what I enjoy. I'm not a true crime author that wants a certain scoop or anything. No, I want to get to know you. Now, people think I'm crazy, and then maybe I am, and that's perfectly fine. But I still want to get to know them for who they are and let the public inside uh, in their minds and their hearts of who they are. Um, and if they have changed, some haven't changed at all. Some have changed drastically. It's my first book, Serial Killers in Heaven and Victims in Hell, um, looking at their religious aspect of it. And they open up about their faith. Um, so that's what I like. That's kind of like why I do what I do. Um, so I hope you enjoyed that. And I'm sure we'll have Robert on again and maybe a little bit better phone quality for the whole time. But please excuse that. But I still hope you enjoyed it anyway. So that's it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, until next time, see ya. <laughs>